Join the Wall Street Journal's Tech Live Cybersecurity on June 6, 2024, in New York City, to be at the forefront of shaping the future of cybersecurity and creating a more secure digital landscape. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Free Expression with Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal opinion page. Uh, This week, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Albert Baller. Chief Executive of Pfizer. Dr. Baller, of course, has been very much at the center of things in the last couple of years with the development of the Pfizer vaccine. And I want to understand and explore with him the origins of that vaccine, how it came about. But I want to start, if I may, Dr. Baller, tell us a little bit about your own personal background, because you have a remarkable history. You've written a book called Moonshot, I should say, uh, which gives a really quite gripping account of the development of the vaccine. And in that book, you talk a little bit about your own personal background, your family history. So if I can start with that, first of all, tell us a bit about your family background and how you came to be chief executive of Pfizer. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. I am uh, Greek by birth. I used to say I'm Greek by birth, American by choice. I'm also an American citizen, proudly now. But uh, I grew up in Greece. And uh, there are two things that are characteristic of me. One, it is that I grew up in a family that uh, they were basically Holocaust survivors. So we were uh, among the very few Jews that survived the Holocaust in the country of Greece. And as a result, we lived as a very small minority. The other characteristic is that after I joined Pfizer, I got the chance to live in nine different cities of five different countries. So I worked around and I was able to develop a good understanding and sensitivity of the differences of the different cultures. As everyone, the family played a key role. Always the family impacts who we are. Sometimes positively, sometimes negative, but always they do. The same happened with me. My parents, because they hardly survived the Holocaust, they developed some strong beliefs about life that they transferred uh, to me. Uh, The good thing it is that um, they didn't talk to me and my sister about what happened to them in the sense that we need to take revenge or we need to be ready to be back or to hate those that they did that to us. They completely ignored them. They had turned the page in their mind. They were talking about the miracle of life to us. They would tell us that there is nothing in life that it is impossible. And they were almost, they had almost crossed the line to another world and eventually they survived. And they use that as a lesson to us that we should never give up and we should always try. And no matter how difficult and hard the situation looks like, always a miracle happens and good prevails. And they were pointing to us, me and my sister, saying that, look what good came out of that. You, I have you now. So that, in a nutshell what my family story was. It is an extraordinary story. You say you grew up in Greece. How did you join Pfizer? I joined Pfizer in the Greek subsidiary. Uh, Myself, I was veterinarian, and then I did a PhD. And uh, all my dreams were to make a career in academia. Pfizer convinced me somehow, somehow to join them in the animal health group and in the veterinary services that they had in this group. And I originally went there 
thinking that I'm going to a sabbatical just to get a little bit of understanding how the world outside academia looks like and then come back. But I fall in love with what I found. And um, what I found was very deep science, but also speed, which was very different in the private sector than what I used to enjoy in the public sector of academia in my country. And I, I stay in my home country, Greece, three years from the 30 that I'm with Pfizer. And then uh, in 96, basically, I left uh, Greece and I started my international career, which, as I told you, ending up uh, being in nine different cities of five different countries. Okay, so let's fast forward then to um, 2020, two years ago. We all remember those strange days before the pandemic. Your chief executive, you've been chief executive about uh, a, just over a year or two years, I think, at that point? I started in 19, so when really COVID hit, it was one year. When you, but yeah. I was chief executive. Tell us about when you first heard, or let's say when you first understood how serious this virus was. Tell us about your response to that, both as you know, both in human terms, but also as the chief executive of one of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. Like every CEO for every business, the first thing that came to my mind was that how are we going to continue operations and uh, keep the people that they work for us safe? It was the times that uh, decisions, are we closing the offices or not, are we closing the manufacturing sites or not, were happening. So number one in my agenda was, you know, I need the people to be healthy and uh, in, in good shape of Pfizer. So that was number one. But then in addition to the problems of everybody was having, I realized that we have to play a role in uh, this pandemic. And the first thing that we had to do was to make sure that we continue the supply of medicines to hospitals. It was the days that we could see hospitals getting completely overcrowded, learning from China that the issues that they were facing was that uh, they didn't have enough beds and they were trying to build hospitals uh, with thousands of uh, people capacity just in a few weeks. And then I immediately made the connection that those beds will need medicines. And we are one of the largest suppliers of injectable medicines in the world for hospitals. So how can we maintain the supply of these medicines when at the same time we had to take measures in our manufacturing sites so that uh, people are safe and we will not have an infection? It was clear that if we had a very big outbreak in one manufacturing site, we would have to shut it down. Mirror that now with the fact that the supply likely would jump 30, 40 times the normal levels, the demand, excuse me, and we need to follow with the supply, that created a clear challenge. So that was my number two priority, how to maintain that. And the third priority was we have one of the largest research machines in the world. So clearly there was a role that we could play in finding a medical solution, treatments and vaccines. And that was the third priority in a note that I wrote to myself while I was flying from Europe to the US. How quickly did you realize there was the possibility of a vaccine? I know you had a, and talk about this a little bit if you would, you had established a relationship already with uh, BioNTech, the German firm. Uh, you obviously, Pfizer has huge numbers of both therapies and vaccines. How quickly did you realize there was an opportunity here to develop a vaccine? I very quickly uh, realized that uh, th there is a need to develop a vaccine and actually, I quickly realized also that failure is not an option. Already in March, which uh, is quite early in the pandemic, it was clear to me that without a vaccine, and it was clear to the whole world, without a vaccine, 
the world the way we know it will change. It was a very, very big uh, issue that we were facing. And I asked my scientists, we need to have a vaccine, we need to have it fast, what needs to be done? And uh, we could do it with multiple technologies. Uh, mRNA was just one of the technologies that we have in-house, but there were others that actually they were more promising at that stage. Uh, adenovirus, or uh, uh, that it was the AstraZeneca or J&J vaccine, or protein, which was the Novavax vaccine. There were technologies that we knew. And for us, it was not given that we will go with mRNA. I know, for example, Moderna or BioNTech, this is all they do. So if they had to go for a vaccine, they would go only for that. When our science told me we want to do it with mRNA, I was very skeptical in the beginning. It was very counterintuitive, and I challenged the recommendation quite a bit. Why to go with mRNA when we know that it is unproven, we don't have a single product developed, but uh, they convinced me with uh, arguments. And when I say they convinced me, it became very clear the value proposition of going with mRNA. It was going to be more risky, but if we could get it done, the vaccine would be way better. And we decided to go. Why was it more risky to go with mRNA? mRNA was, had never produced a single product before COVID. The first mRNA product was a vaccine product, and uh, that was done by us. That was the first challenge. The second challenge was that mRNA was never produced anywhere in the world. Not a single vial of mRNA product. So we needed basically to, and it's very sophisticated manufacturing process, we needed to start from scratch. And the third was it would represent logistical challenges because mRNA needed to be transferred in minus 70 degrees Celsius. And that was a very big problem. On the other hand, mRNA was the right technology if variants will uh, come because you can change the vaccine to adapt it to new variants very, very quickly. I know a lot of people will be familiar with this, but it's still helpful, I think, to explain what an mRNA vaccine is and how it differs from traditional vaccines that we all grew up with. Let's start with the basic concept of vaccination. What you do when you vaccinate, it is that you introduce into your body something that looks like the virus that you want to protect against, but it is not the virus. When your body recognizes this something, immediately makes antibodies against this something. And the idea is that when the virus comes, your body will have already antibodies so that will fight the virus. And there are multiple ways to create those antibodies. mRNA is, it is the, the most refined technology right now. And the way that it's doing, instead of introducing to your body something that looks like the virus, you introduce through a messenger RNA an information so that your cells will produce something that looks like the virus. And when your cells produce this, which is encoded in the mRNA that you are giving, then your cell also produces antibodies against this uh, virus. And then when the virus comes, you are protected. This is the difference. Instead of having a protein injected into your body, you are giving a message so that your cells will produce this protein. And then everything follows the same uh, immunological response. That gives several benefits and particularly are related with the fact that uh, if you need to boost to give another injection and another injection, you can do it very easily without creating issues that your body will reject the booster. Also, if you want to change uh, in the manufacturing and uh, because a new variant comes, you just change the message in your messenger RNA. 
basically you change, you can do things in weeks rather than in months. These are phenomenal benefits in a pandemic. As you say, there were no mRNA vaccines. Um, it is a radically new technology. What were the risks associated? I mean, you know, there are a lot of people who can, to this day, continue to have concerns about the vaccine, say it's, you know, produces all kinds of side effects, and we'll get on to that. But how confident were you that this was a safe and effective and reliable new technology? First of all, we are working with this for uh, mRNA is new, but it is 20 years old. With just uh, those 20 years, we hadn't been able to have a product, but we had a very good understanding of how it works, why it works, what it does. That was the first thing. But we had to prove it. We had to do very, very long studies so that we can demonstrate the safety and efficacy. And that was before we get an approval. Uh, our study ourselves was with 46,000 people. Typically, the studies that we are running in, uh, uh, to get approval for medicines, if it's an oncology medicine, will be a few hundred people. If it is a cardiovascular uh, medicine, it will be a few thousand people, three, 4,000 people. That was 46,000 people. So we, we did heavily scrutinized the, the basis. But then following that, right now, there is no other product in the history of humanity that can been, has been tested as much as mRNA vaccines. Because we're given to billions of doses right now. Only ourselves provided the world three billion doses. Imagine also add to that Moderna as well. And every single individual was recorded very heavily by the health authorities of the whole world. And in some countries, very intensively, like Israel, for example, Scandinavia, etc., but they have electronic data, uh, medical records. So I think, uh, although people may in the beginning say, I don't know, maybe, maybe some others should get it before me, now billions have got it before them. So there is no doubt about it. Tell us how you were able to accelerate the process. Normally, the development of vaccine takes years. And in fact, actually, in the book, you describe how I think when you and your scientists first talked about this, they talked about maybe on really an accelerated basis, you could get it in about a year and a half, 18 months, you might be able to develop it in a year and a half. In fact, you did it in nine months. How did you manage to shortcut that process so dramatically so that we had it in, uh, say, less than a year? There was tremendous work that uh, happened in uh, digital to start with. We had digitized our operations. And uh, by the time that pandemic hit, we had already put so much investments in digitizing the clinical operations that uh, we were ready to utilize this network. That played a key role. The second was that regulators work very close with us. So sometimes you submit something to FDA, for example, a request, I want to run this experiment. They could come back to you in five months with a reply because they are getting a lot of these replies. Because it was COVID, they would come back to us in five days. So there was, uh, let's say, tremendous help from that aspect as well. We took money out of the equation, Frank. Uh, when you do development, you do things sequential. You don't do things in parallel because the risk is extremely high. Actually, success in the first stages are 4%, 5%, 95% they are dying. So you don't go all in when you know that many of the candidates that you have will die. In our case, we went all in with all candidates and we did things in parallel. And not only in the development, we did the same in manufacturing. Usually you don't start the manufacturing process before you know that you have a product that will be approved. In that case, uh, we knew that that would be too late. So we started preparing manufacturing in the assumption that will be approved 
And if not, we would have to write off the investment and scratch off the inventory that we created. So all of these things happened in, uh, in parallel. And at the end, we had to run a very big study. And the same study that we run, it is a study that every medicine is required to run to get approval by regulators. It's a phase three study. This is the study where you, you put thousands of people and you show if the vaccine is safe and efficacious. That happened exactly the same way. It's just that the way that we cut the time, we cut it before starting this study, which means that we took tremendous risk that maybe we have the wrong candidate into the study. This study costs a billion plus dollars. Only this study, not the whole development program, right? So it's a significant expense and you better have the right candidate when you start it because you can't change the study once it starts. Right now, we took the risk. So all of these things played a dramatic role. And plus, the study was able to conclude fast because there was so much COVID around. So the 46,000 people that we vaccinated, they were getting diseased. So we could see if they belong to the placebo or to the vaccine. We've got to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'll have more with Dr. Albert Baller, CEO of Pfizer. Join the Wall Street Journal in New York City on June 6, 2024, for the inaugural Tech Live Cybersecurity to network and hear from leading cybersecurity experts across a variety of sectors on how to combat cybersecurity threats, mitigate crippling attacks, and safeguard privacy on the individual and organizational level. Use the discount code PODCAST to receive $200 off your registration fee. Visit wsj.com slash techcyberpodcast to learn more. I'm back with Dr. Albert Baller, CEO of Pfizer. We're talking obviously about the development of the Pfizer vaccine. Tell us about your relationship with the government, with the administration here at the time. I know you weren't actually part of Operation Warp Speed, which was the Trump administration's uh, program to uh, help pharmaceutical companies develop vaccines. But tell us what role the government played in your conversations and your relationship with the administration at the time. If I may ask, you weren't directly involved. It was, you know, for clarity, it was, I think, with the government, uh, the administration uh, guaranteed, in a sense, that it would buy the vaccines. You weren't directly involved in that, though. Why not? It was not that they, they would guarantee that they would buy. What the best was, was that all the studies were done at the government's money. That was. Guarantee that would buy was coming after. But uh, it's not that. It was that I have a program that will cost me one billion. Here is the money. This is how it was working with basically every company. And um, I thought very hard also uh, to do that at the dime of the taxpayer because I have a fiduciary responsibility with, uh, with the shareholders. I've chosen to go with our own money because I knew that when you get money from someone, there are always strings attached. Uh, and uh, when it is taxpayer's money, they better be. I think it is the right thing. But I knew also that will delay us because they want it to be, they would like, rightly so, to be part of the committees that will choose what protocol we are going to use, which candidate of the vaccines we are going to use, which manufacturing sites we will start manufacturing. I didn't want my scientists to go through this bureaucracy. I wanted to be protected as much as they can from that. So I told them, don't think about money. Money I'm giving you, all you have to do it is you work with themselves to find out the best possible solutions so that we can have a safe, effective, and quick development of a vaccine. And um, this is why I didn't take the money. Actually, I thought that uh, I offered multiple times that I want to be part of a present world speed, just I will do it on our own money. And I thought that they would love that because it's not costing anything. 
I was surprised, but not really, because I felt that uh, the fact that we were not taking money made them feel that they have less honest on us, less uh, on this on our project compared to other projects that they were giving the money and they were as a result part of the committees that we were discussing how to the money would be spent. And uh, that, at certain points, created some issues to us. Uh, but eventually we were able to conclude and once we had a very safe and effective vaccine, we started working very well with, uh, uh, in the beginning, World Speed and then eventually with uh, the Biden administration uh, COVID team. And we did very well together. So tell us, you worked on this accelerated program. You, you were able to accelerate the trial process, I think, uh, in a remarkable way with you know large numbers uh, of people taking part in the trial. And you described very well and very movingly in the book how when you finally got the results of the trial, you discovered that the efficacy, the, the effectiveness of the vaccine was well in excess of 90%, I think, and 96%. And you describe, I think, how even though maybe surprising that was, were you surprised by the results of the trial, by how effective it was? By Because I think you'd set, you say in the book you'd set a target of 60% efficacy, and it ended up, as I say, about over 96%. Tell us about that, if you would. I was very surprised. The FDA had set the bar to 50%. So they said that a, a, a vaccine will be approved needs to have at least 50% efficacy. And this is not a small efficacy for multiple diseases. But there are vaccines that are giving this efficacy. Flu, for example. And still, they are very helpful. 50% when you have nothing is way better. We said that let's set the bar for our vaccine higher. So we power the study in a way that we needed to have at least 60% efficacy to be able to have statistical significance. We were hoping that maybe it would be more than 60, maybe 70, but, you know, it was uh, also, we were hoping that we have something. <laughs> when I heard that it was 96%, I realized that this is a game changer. I realized that uh, the world will become a very different place. And um, you know, when you're the first one to know something that the whole world, very anxious, awaits to, to learn, that puts a lot of emotion on you. And this is what happened. We've seen, obviously, as COVID has gone along, and, and again, your, your vaccine was very effective in the early stages in terms of with the original variant. As more variants have developed, uh, particularly the latest, the Omicron variant, um, it, it does seem that the variants have become more resistant, if you like, to the vaccine. Although, again, I understand that your vaccine still is very strongly protects against the risk of hospitalization and serious disease. Where do you think we are now in this process? I mean, we've seen these multiple variants. We've seen the response to vaccines. What are the risks now two years into this pandemic what do you think are the risks of new variants developing and the risk that they could be that they could be resistant to vaccines this is was always the risk with this virus it uh, mutates very well and the fact that has been spread so much makes it easier for the virus to to, to mutate omicron is the 15th letter of the greek alphabet uh, so it was the 15th variant let's say and the first and only that was able to escape the protection of uh, the current vaccines, if you don't have three doses at least. With three doses, the protection against hospitalizations and deaths is very good. Doesn't last for long, but it's very good. So that challenged completely the situation, changed the dynamics, and very quickly, right? It, it came in January. So right now, because we were using mRNA technology, we already developed and we are testing a vaccine that it is an improved version of what we have, and uh, the aim of the vaccine it is to protect against all variants, including Omicron. It's not to protect against Omicron, it's to protect 
at least equally against all the other variants and way better against Omicron, but we have problem with the current vaccine. We are uh, very close to know the results. So I'm hopeful, based on everything I know and I have seen preclinically, that the clinical trials will demonstrate that you can achieve it. But we wait, of course, to see the results before we conclude and uh, we declare victory. What lessons? Uh, it's been, as we say, a remarkable two years. You developed a vaccine in record time, uh, which does seem to have been very effective. As a company, what lessons do you draw from this experience of the last two years? There are going to be more pandemics. There are going to be more viruses that are going to threaten us like this. Are we in a better place now? Are we better prepared to deal with the future challenges of new viruses? First of all, I think as a society, we need to look what was it that made the big difference in this pandemic. And I think the clear message that the big difference happened because we had a thriving life sciences sector, a private thriving life sciences sector, that was part of a broader ecosystem that uh, biotechs, which are private, uh, big biopharmaceutical companies, which are private, academia, that much of that is private, much not, and then eventually regulators, worked very well. So imagine what would have been the situation if uh, we were not uh, at that level of science in the hands of private sector right now. It would be really a disaster. So I think number one lesson it is that we need to make sure whatever uh, we do, do whatever we can to maintain this uh, thriving sector and uh, to enhance innovation, particularly in this country, because also, if you see, everything happened here. This is where most, if not all, of the solutions that were successful came up. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is uh, applicable to all of us. People, they don't know what they can and cannot do. And if anything, they have a serious tendency to underestimate what they can achieve. And if you set to your people very bold goals, you insist that they are not negotiable, but you provide them the tools to try to do their best on achieving them, you will be surprised how much they will achieve for things that you thought are impossible to be done. Final question, Dr. Bullock. We've seen in this country in particular, but around the world too, a lot of questioning of not just obviously the, the vaccines, but of, but of the scientific guidance that we've been given more generally. Um, we've seen a lot of people, let's be honest, we've seen a lot of um, inconsistent guidance, I think, uh, from government and to some extent from companies. And we've seen a lot of people challenging the science, whether in regards to vaccines or the transmissibility of the virus or the mitigation measures we should take for the virus. Now, of course, we should also say that, you know, what is it, 80% of uh, Americans have had at least one shot of one of the vaccines and a, a sizable number more. So there's a lot of faith, clearly, that's been placed in it, understandable faith in it. But as you look back on the last two years and you look at the way in which science, which is, you know, we, we've all been exposed in a dramatic and unexpected way to science over the last couple of years, to the science of the virus and vaccines and everything else. Are you concerned at all that there's been a loss of trust and a loss of confidence in scientists and the way in which the science has been presented to people? I, I'm um, monitoring this situation very intensively and I'm following very, very much polls and we are running a lot of polls ourselves. I think the situation that is, the way that we can characterize the situation is there is a polarization. There is actually, post the pandemic and everything that has happened with the vaccines and the treatments, a large majority 
of uh, the population in the U.S., in Europe, around the world, that uh, increased their confidence in science, actually glorified science. They made science as their heroes. I can see that in the way that people now, young generation, want to join Pfizer, wants to join life sciences in a much higher degree than before. Before, everybody wanted to, to join uh, the large tech. Now they want to go to biotech. So they are the new heroes of the world. But at the same time, there is a minority that went exactly the opposite direction, that they felt that the science is fake, that they felt that the science is, uh, is serving political motives. And the elections in the U.S. contributed very big time in something like that. And this is the unfortunate situation. And we need everyone to believe in science. And we should not isolate those that develop critical position or skeptical position against the science. We just need to engage them into discussions and try to, to convince them. And once the dust settles, I think more people will move to the camp that we believe in science then they will stay into the camp that uh, science has altered motives. Do you think that um, maybe at times those people who are responsible for communicating messages have maybe contributed to the decline of trust in science by inconsistency, by maybe a lack of clarity with what they're saying? Do we need to rethink the way in which the role that science plays in public policy? Look, I think that certainly there were some of the incidents that you described and didn't help. I don't think that these are the ones that created the mistrust or the vaccine hesitancy or the treatment hesitancy, but clearly didn't help by happening. And if there is something that we need to look uh, carefully, it is that some of the organizations that we build to develop health policies, they have been extremely successful. They have uh, rise to be iconic institutions, but they were more tailored to operate in uh, times of normalcy. They were not that much uh, made to operate in times of crisis. And in times of crisis, there was a need to deviate from the standard protocol because you may want to wait for more data when it is a normal period. Uh, more data in a crisis means more dead bodies. So sometimes you need to understand when you need to act and act more decisively. And there were countries that were able to do that better than others. And typically smaller countries where it is very clear, chain of command, it's very clear that there's one organization or that makes these decisions, rather four or five as in the US, um, work better. Um, I think that's something that we should look for the future. Dr. Albert Buller, CEO of Pfizer, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Please join us next week for another conversation. In the meantime, have a good week. Hold up. 